Just a note before we begin, all of these episodes in season one are linked together. It's one massive story involving the Haudenosaunee, the uh, Iroquois Confederacy, New Netherland, and New Sweden. It's one large story. You can just watch it beginning to end. You don't have to skip around. If you do, things might get a little confusing. Just previous to this installment, we covered the story of New Sweden and the revenge of Peter Minuet. And before that, we covered the beginning of the Beaver Wars, which will continue in the future and into next season. But now we twist our story back to New Netherland and their portion in this tale. In our last episode on New Netherland, we covered the administration of the director, Walter Van Twiller, who was a nephew of Van Ren, like so many characters in our story here. And because he was hired purely out of nepotism, he was incompetent. He was fat and an alcoholic, and he was terrible at running the colony. But by the time he was finally let go, he was the richest man in that colony. Not only that, but Fort Amsterdam in New Amsterdam, which is now New York City, was in ruins. All of the livestock were on private farms, even the ones that were supposedly purchased for the company farms. And the colony in general was almost completely neglected by the West India Company. Again, if you remember in a previous episode, they handed off the administration of most of New Netherland to the Amsterdam Chamber, to just one of their subdivisions. Over the period we've been talking about, the New Netherland colony never really made a profit for the Dutch West India Company and actually cost them money. But the Dutch West India Company made so much money elsewhere, New Netherland was more or less a write-off. They didn't have to think about it. Although it lost money in the grand scheme of things, it was such a small financial loss compared to their gains, it, it actually allowed the colony to survive because they never decided to just cut and cut their losses and back out of it. Just an example of how profitable the rest of the world was to the Dutch West India Company. Peter Hain, he's a Dutch pirate, well, privateer. He works for the Netherlands. He works for the Dutch West India Company. He intercepts a Spanish fleet in November of 1628. And from that one fleet that he was able to pillage, the West India Company was able to pay off all its debts and pay huge dividends. Now, with the Dutch West India Company, as we talked about in a previous episode, they had dividends of 10, 15, 20, 30%. Huge dividends. So, here we go. One encounter, one capture of a fleet, and the profit derived from it were greater than anything New Netherland could scrape together in the same amount of time. So, the old director is out, Van Twiller. And he hangs around, he goes back and forth a, a, a little bit, because he is a relation to the Van Ren family, and he has some interest in Rensselaerwick, the big manor that they own in what is now the capital region of New York State. Before we talk about the new director, and things get really interesting, the Dutch West India Company made a couple other changes in the late 1630s, right into 1640, that is going to cause the colony to start to blossom a little bit to be more competitive with the massive numbers of people in New England and in the southern English colonies. In 1639, the company kind of decided to finally start treating New Netherland like a colony rather than a store or some sort of business enterprise. They started to treat it as if it was a place to be governed over rather than managed over. And they passed what's called the Articles and Conditions of 1639, and to inspire more people to come over, they offered free passage and huge chunks of land that if you cultivated for so many years, you would then own. The Dutch West India Company formally ended their monopoly over the fur trade in the colony. So anyone could participate in the fur trade. 
This meant that the company had a lot less expenses. Of course, you think, well, they don't control the fur trade, so now they don't have so much direct income from the fur trade. But they didn't need company farms as much anymore. They didn't need a lot of hired paid personnel. And instead, they made their money off of import and export taxes. And the opening of the fur trade was great for Native Americans because all of a sudden there were a lot more buyers. And especially in what is now upstate New York, really the Mohawk Indians of the Iroquois Confederacy had a monopoly on who was coming into the Albany area with furs. So you have a lot more buyers and you have the same amount of sellers. And Economics 101 comes into play. What happens when you have an increase in demand and a number of different entities that are demanding that supply from you while well, you have a push to increase prices. So with more demand, more people looking to buy your stuff, prices go up. So the Native Americans benefited from the opening of the fur trade. So this is a big turning point for the company because beforehand, as many scholars have pointed out, uh, down here on my index card, I have Van Cleef Bachman, the historian, I believe. He wrote in 1638 and before, the Dutch West India Company was all about, all about their attempt to extract a maximum profit from the fur trade in the shortest term. After this magical 1639 date, with all these new programs put into place, Thomas Condon, another famous historian, well, famous to me anyway, he says that the West India Company began to think of New Netherland as a breadbasket for the other West India Company holdings. So it's not so much that New Netherland was a loss, uh, a, a center of not profit. Rather, it would support the areas of this Dutch West India Company enterprise that were profitable. So a lot of the islands in the Caribbean and down in Dutch Brazil, where they're growing sugarcane and they're making these cash crops to sell really quickly. Well, they, those people need food. And if you're going to just destroy an entire island in the Caribbean and grow sugarcane on every square inch, you still need to bring food in to feed the slaves, which we're going to talk about slavery a lot in another episode, but also the workers there. So if you're going, if you're growing cash crops, you're not growing food, and that could be a big problem. The English southern colonies had that problem quite a bit. Starvation was a huge deal in places like Jamestown very early on, like the 1620s and the 1610s, because you're growing crops to sell, not to eat, and you can't eat tobacco. Well, you can eat tobacco but I would advise against it. So I'm done setting the scene now. We've talked about company business. Now let's get into the character of our new director, Willem Kieft. When Kieft shows up to relieve Van Twiller, he shows up like he's a visiting king or the Pope showing up in some city full of Catholics. And he made it very clear as soon as he showed up that his role in New Netherland was to be like the Prince of Orange in the Netherlands, essentially the the noble leader of the nation. So never before had a director come in with this this idea of nobility on their back. So this guy's going to be a, a far different character than the other characters we've seen, even some of the more incompetent ones. Pretty much right away, one thing that he does is that the colony has an advisory board under the director. It's called the Council of Twelve. That number changes every now and then. So in the future, we'll see a Council of Nine, a Council of Eight. Well, they had a Council of Twelve, and everyone had one vote. He gets rid of the Council of Twelve, and he makes a Council of Two. It's him and his assistant, and he gets two votes. So essentially, out of the three-vote total, Keefe's going to get his way. As you can imagine, this is incredibly unpopular among everything else this guy does pretty much. 
and there's going to be letters written to the Netherlands almost immediately, just people flinging letters across the Atlantic to the Dutch West India Company, like, who is this guy? Where did you get this guy from? We got to get him out of here. And a lot of those letters, I, I believe, were blocked by Kieft, or never really made it to their destination, but pretty much all the information we have on this guy comes from letters written by people who lived in New Netherlands who hated this guy. So we might have a biased view, but that's the only one I have for you. In these letters are all sorts of colorful language. One letter says, before the wars even started, Keith was only in the colony to provide for himself, much like Van Twiller, just amass his own fortune. And this seems to be a pattern among directors ever since Peter Minuet was fired, that these guys are just here to make money for themselves. Another letter mentions how divisive this guy was. He took this small, spread-out community of people in New Netherland, and he forced them to take sides. And it said that whoever were on his side could do nothing amiss. So any sort of uh, trading dispute, any sort of legal matter, any sort of bidding to purchase new land, if you were his friend or on his side, you would win over anyone who wasn't. But his defining characteristic, at least through these surviving sources, of which there are many, but they all seem to hate him. So you have a diversity of sources, you have a wide range of sources, but they all agree that this guy is a terrible person. The defining characteristic that I have gleaned from these documents is that Willem Kieft was a coward. And I'd go further than that. I'd say an incompetent coward. And I'll start building the case for that right now. So before the wars happened, which we haven't gotten to yet, and it's going to get intense, he, uh, Kieft never collected debts. So it's known that when the next director comes in, he's got all these unpaid debts that he has to go around and collect. So Keith never wanted to get into that awkward situation where he had to go collect money from people. So people just ran up debts against the company or against each other, and there was no enforcing power because Keith didn't necessarily want to get involved, it seems like. Which is fine. If everything is working smoothly, an incompetent person can run anything, right? If you have a business that just sort of runs itself and you have competent workers under you, you can have a boss that is nearly useless as long as everybody else is on their stuff. But when something truly drastic or something truly bad happens, you got to have somebody at the top there who suddenly knows what he's doing. And so the, the, the colony is actually growing. So the colony grows to about 3,000 people in this time of relative peace. Keeft is the director, things are kind of crumbling, but there's so many people coming in, there's so much interest, the fur trade has opened up, like we said, things are actually going pretty well. Just like under Van Twiller, who was also incompetent, things are still chugging along. The, the machine is moving by itself. But remember, as Minuet was heading out and Van Twiller came in, right in that transition period where the colony would be vulnerable, the English started pouring into the Connecticut Valley, and they ended up taking over that portion of the colony. During the same gap in leadership between Van Twiller and now Willem Kieft, the, the Swedish moved into the Delaware, which we covered in the last episode. So now, territorially, two-thirds of what was New Netherland under Minuet is gone. And one-third of it, Minuet took himself for the Swedes. So it was up to Kieft to respond to New Sweden, which we really haven't gotten to yet. How is he going to show his strength and say, hey, we're bigger, we're badder, we have, you know, we have all the rightful claims to this area, we want it back. Well, this is how he responds. And again, this builds the case of his incompetence. One thing he does, he sends a letter to, to New Sweden, to, the, to Fort, uh, what, what did we call it? Fort Christina. He sends a letter and, and the Swedes are like, yeah, thanks for the letter. We're not, we're not leaving. You can't do anything about us here. 
Another thing he does, he erects the the arms of the Prince of Orange at the front of the Delaware River. And he's like, that'll get him. That'll show who owns this river. And of course, the Swedes just knock over the arms. They don't care. The coat of arms. What does it matter to them? So Kieft, mostly through inaction, allows New Sweden to survive. And not just dig in like we covered in the last episode, but start to grow and flourish and, and have a sustained settlement there, which would only deepen the legal case they have to owning that river valley. Back to the other end of things, Keeft even starts talking to the new governor of New Haven, which was formerly Dutch territory in what is now Connecticut. They, they, they open up a, a written relationship between letters. And the governor there, Governor Cos, Coswell? Coswell, I believe. Cogswell. He says to him, you know, this is where we live. Don't worry about us expanding. We're going to be over here. We wouldn't even touch the Delaware now. We got the Swedes down. Now we're not even going to bother with it. And Keith was like, okay, I'll take your word for it. And then before you know it, you have people from New England settling on the Delaware. You got the Swedes down there already. You have the Dutch who are still trying to maintain some forts for trading purposes. And then all of a sudden the English show up, 20 families total, to settle in the Delaware. And I believe they actually start, they get off the boats, they make it down there, and they start building this settlement. And of course, who gets tipped off about this first? It's the Swedish. Keeft again is near powerless, and it's only with the Swedes, who are very few in number, that the two of them force the English out of there. The man can do nothing decisive on his own. Another important piece of the puzzle that this man is incompetent. Now, if you have family going back to New Netherland and you do your genealogy, you might find that around the time that Keeft was the director, all of a sudden you have some English relatives pop up in, in your story. Well, Keeft was the first guy to really welcome new settlements of English people to settle all along Long Island and basically down, downstate New York. So all of a sudden he's allowing English settlers into the colony. This might be part of the plan to make it an agricultural colony and have a steady supply of food to send elsewhere. But you're allowing them to make settlements that are almost entirely made up of people from New England and then having them swear allegiance to the Netherlands or the company or to the director. So it's always tenuous because they're technically your subjects, but 20, 30 miles away, you have a whole number of colonies at the edge of this area we call New England that are loyal to the King of England. And this English population inside of the colony, sanctioned and everything else, it's going to come back to bite the colony in the butt years from now. We'll, we'll talk about that in a future episode. I don't want to spoil that. Within New Amsterdam, Keith tried to pass a tax on beer. And believe it or not, back then, taxing alcohol was a big deal. That nearly caused absolute chaos. It nearly caused an uprising. But based on the sources, it was a successful tax, and it stayed long after Willem Keefe was gone. So there's there's one thing he might have pulled off successfully. Um, other things about Willem Keefe. Like, there's really nothing good about this guy. Uh, Willem Keefe wanted to import slaves from Dutch Brazil, because at this time, the Dutch West India Company owns Brazil. And he thought there should be more slaves in New Netherland. Does anyone think that today? It's a crazy thought. Of course, this is a guy many hundred years ago, and the colony up to this point had very few slaves, and I'll have a whole episode on cultural issues, including slavery, but this guy was like, we need more slaves here. Yeah, bring that, bring African slavery to New Netherland. I want more of this. So as much as they didn't like him back then, there's really nothing to like about him in the modern imagination. I don't like this guy. In all the various documentation about the directorship of Willem Kieft, I found two maybe good things about the guy. 
Because to be fair, I, I want to try to see the flip side here. Let me try to find a diamond in the rough. There had to be some redeeming thing this guy did. And so I really dug around. One thing he did, he ordered a church to be built, I believe in New Amsterdam, for the Dutch Reformed Church. And But the thing is, he raised the money from people who would attend this church and citizens of New Amsterdam, and then he attached his name to it. So he, he said, you know, this church was built under the directorship of Willem Keefe, something like that, in Dutch, of course. So as much as, he, yeah, he built a public good, he built a church, he also kind of just stuck his name onto it, even though he didn't donate any money towards it. And another good thing that he did, and this is probably a good thing. Yeah, I, I don't see a, a bad side to this. If you remember back to our episode on the Beaver Wars, uh, Father Yogs or Father Jogs, who got caught up in this captive situation among the Mohawk, and he was tortured, and different parts of his body were cut off, all this terrible stuff, he managed to escape. Keefe played some role in getting that man back to France. So there's there's one good action right there. He got a guy home. So, just to be fair, that's the good stuff I found on this guy. But now let's really get into it. So at a certain point, the colony's going to need a competent director because circumstances are going to come up that require somebody who knows what he's doing. And of course, he's been the director two, three years now, going on four years. He's been lucky. He's been very lucky. And things are starting to change in the colony. The first changes are subtle, but they are present. Now, with all these new people coming in, most of them, almost all of them, are not employees of the Dutch West India Company. There's no vetting done. There's no education done, no preparation, no training. People are just showing up, no matter what their temperament is, their disposition, their feelings on Native Americans. And there isn't much of a criminal justice system in place to manage all these new people. The... The colony has grown in number, but has not grown in structure. So among these new immigrants, there are a couple here and there in the shadows lurking who are mistreating Native Americans. And of course, the Native Americans, they recognize these people as belonging to the New Netherland people, the New Netherland tribe, in a sense. That's how they would have looked at it. And so we have an unstable element that is going to negatively affect the colony. And we don't have a director who's competent enough to handle it. Also, we see that Native Americans are obtaining guns in record numbers, although from unofficial sources. So at a certain point, the Mohawk, for example, are allowed to buy guns directly from the Dutch West India Company. But private traders on ships along the coast of North America, really long coast, very hard to manage, they're going to pop onto the shore, see who's around, and trade pelts or other goods for guns. So a small number of arms are ending up in all these Algonquin tribes along the coast. They're getting one or two guns per tribe, maybe a little powder. It's, it's varying, and we don't have exact numbers because this is a, a smuggling operation of sorts. But yeah, so the you have more people than ever. You have characters who aren't friendly to the natives, and then you have other characters who are selling guns to the natives. So the powder keg is starting to be poured onto uh, the pile, so to speak. And with all these new people, the land is starting to be crowded. One of the strengths New Netherland had before this point is that the natives and the Europeans could live very far away from each other. They don't need to bother one another because there are so few Europeans, they could just stay out of the way. There isn't moments for agitation. So typically when they interacted, they planned on it. They walked to a trading fort. They knew... They knew what was going to happen. They weren't in each other's backyard, so to speak. But now, all of a sudden, 
the farmers are showing up all over the place. They're taking up land. They're taking up land the Native Americans value very much. So new problems started to emerge, similar to the problems the Native Americans faced with the English in New England, where cattle, Europeans basically allowed their cattle to go about. They didn't fence in their cattle at this time, their, their livestock. A lot of it was allowed to wander during certain seasons of the year. Well, if that cattle ended up anywhere near Native American territory, the Native Americans would go, well, that's an animal. It's a wild animal. It's near my territory. I'm going to hunt that animal. And even if they recognized, well, that's a European-owned animal. I shouldn't hunt that thing. Those animals were eating Native American crops, Native American corn. Because the Europeans didn't fence a lot of their livestock, the Native Americans did not fence their crops. So we have a difference of culture, which in close proximity creates a lot of friction. You have animals that aren't penned up eating crops that aren't penned up. Whereas the Native Americans typically kept a lot of animals in pens, like bears. Uh, they had uh, domesticated bears. If you go back to the episode on the Indomohawk Country, the, the episode on Indomohawk Country, which is a journal by Vander Bogart. So sorry, sorry for the, uh, the brain fart there. So you have animals in pens, and then you have open crop fields among the Native Americans. Then among the Europeans, you have animals roaming around, and you have fences around their crops. And this causes problems. Native Americans are like, you're eating my corn. Your animals are eating my corn. And then the Europeans are like, well, you killed my pig. So we're having like a Hatfield and McCoy situation here. And now to make things worse, to, to, to light the first match, throw it on the powder keg, things are going to start going off now. Willem Kieft wants to collect a corn tax. Now, this is something the English had already done for about two years. But Kieft in 1639 said, well, I need to support this colony. I need to show my bosses that this colony is productive and I'm doing my job. I'm going to start doing what the English did and collecting corn as a form of tax from the natives within my perceived territory. At some point, he claims that the company told him to do this, but it seems like the primary source authors doubted this and that this was his idea inspired from the English model. The fact that he wanted to tax Native Americans came to a surprise to all of the Native Americans. As they weren't living on reservations or inside of Dutch towns, they were still very much in control of their own tribes and villages living as they always had. They just had Dutch neighbors now. So these Native American tribes were like, you're going to you're going to take our corn. You don't provide us anything. You aren't ruling over us. We are allowing you to live here and we outnumber you greatly. So you should probably listen to us. One sachem of a tribe is quoted as saying, How can the sachem at the fort dare to exact a tax from us? He must be a very shabby fellow. He has come to live in our land when we have not invited him, and now he attempts to deprive us of our corn for nothing. The soldiers at Fort Amsterdam are no protection to us. This is a very good argument. So the sachem of this tribe is saying, I, I don't owe you anything. You don't provide me anything. I'm my own political entity. Keith's justification for this tax that he would tell to the people who actually live in New Netherland and not the Native American tribes who are still their own political entities, that we need money to rebuild this place. We need supplies. We need things. If we have corn, we can sell the corn or we can have the corn and then we'll have more money that we would have used to buy food to repair the fort. The fort is falling apart. We have one company ship. Everything's in shambles. We need money. 
one source for this entire time period is a guy by the last name of DeVries. Now, DeVries, he's going to be mid-level in wealth. So he knows Van Ren, and he knows these other guys who started patroon ships. And he starts his own little patroon ship on Staten Island, I believe. But he has other funding coming in. He's not the sole investor in that. So he, he does well for himself. He's an influential person, but he's not among the mega rich of the Netherlands at this time. De Vries is a major source for this time period, like I said. And he knows Keith personally, and there's going to be a lot of interaction between these two coming up here. De Vries first spots the collection of this corn tax at one point because he's off in his boat and he's visiting nearby tribes that he's very friendly with. And he's looking to trade cloth for corn. Cloth he got from the Netherlands that are, you know, it's a pretty intricate textile that the Native Americans can't make themselves yet in exchange for corn. He goes to these friendly villages. He knows these people. And they say, we don't have any extra corn to give you. The company ships came by and they took corn from us. So you can see already, collecting this tax is going to break down the economics of the colony, but also the politics, and that's about to come up here. It seems as though it was so hard to collect this tax that Keith couldn't get enough Dutch people, young Dutch men, to go out and force Native Americans to give up this tax. So what he instead did is he once again invited the English in, and he found the guys who were probably involved in collecting a corn tax for the English... And he said, why don't you come work for me? Do the same job. I would love it. And he invites in some of the worst characters you're ever going to see in this, the season one of this podcast. Just disgusting people. One guy he hires, and this is the, the main bad guy, is Captain John Underhill. Okay, this guy reminds me of that character in the movie The Patriot. If you remember that, I believe that the lead general for the British was Cornwallis. And then they brought in that guy. That guy who was willing to do anything to win the war. And Cornwallis just looked the other way while this other guy just committed all sorts of atrocities to Mel Gibson's family. Remember that guy? Okay. This guy is that guy. So Captain John Underhill. This guy was an English mercenary. He brought in a bunch of his buddies. And they were going to collect that tax by whatever means necessary. And let me tell you what means he found necessary. If a Native American tribe refused to pay up, he would kidnap people from the tribe. He would kidnap a man, let's say, and he would tie a rope around the guy's neck. And then he would drag him behind his boat back and forth in front of the tribe, basically slowly, slowly suffocating the man to death very publicly so everybody could see. He's also been known to flay people strip by strip, much, of, much in the same fashion as how we talked about Native Americans torturing captives at certain points in time. Captain John Underhill is doing the same stuff to get this tax from people. There are reports of him not only flaying people, but cutting off the genitals of Native American men and stuffing them into uh, their own mouths. And then other reports of John Underhill and his men simply beating men to death. So no weapons, no fast death, just bludgeoning people until they died. This is barbarism at the, at the highest level. This is all among the Algonquin tribes in what is now downstate New York, Long Island, that area. So the Mohawk Indians, they have a special relationship. They are not subject to this tax. And even Kieft was smart enough to know not to tax the Mohawk because this story would be very different. But there were Native American tribes that said, no, we're not paying this tax, especially if you're going to have this guy come and collect it. So the Raritan Indians said, no, we are not paying the tax. And this is around 1640. 
Willem Kieft responds by offering a prize. And he says to anyone who will listen, he says, I will give you 10 pelts for every Raritan head you bring to the fort. You kill a Raritan, cut off his head, bring it to me, you get 10 pelts. As you can imagine, all these random European people, like we talked about, who were invited into the colony by the new company policy and by Kieft himself, there were tons of guys who now were going out and killing Native Americans. Now, it didn't have to be Raritan necessarily, because I doubt Kieft knew the difference in appearance between a Raritan and another tribe from downstate New York. So Native Americans were now suddenly not only afraid of other Native Americans in the pre-existing political landscape that they had always had, but now you have random Europeans slaughtering natives for no other reason than to make a profit. So we have close proximity, we have an unstable immigrant population that just came in, we have a bounty on Native American heads, now tribes are very quickly rebelling against any sort of Dutch rule. The, the natives don't know who to trust. Uh, a nice guy like DeVries, like we talked about, he, he makes steady relations with Native Americans. He establishes a nice little settlement. Or is the guy on the ship that's coming towards you somebody looking to collect a bounty? So all of a sudden you have innocent Europeans who are being slaughtered, and you have innocent Native Americans who are being slaughtered. It's a bloodbath. The trust that maintained relative peace in New Netherland up to the point of Kieft coming to power rapidly disappeared. And there are many examples of this. Here, here's one, for instance. So De Vries, he had a settlement on Staten Island. At a certain point in 1640, a bunch of pigs were slaughtered. And of course, the people at the settlement blamed the Raritan Indians. In retribution, the settlers on Staten Island, 100 men total, raided a Raritan village. They held people for ransom that would be paid in wampum. And again, there was mutilation of genitals. I don't know why there's so much of this right now, but they mutilated the genitals of a male captive with a, with a, what does it say? A splintered wood plank. Absolutely savage. There's, there's no excuse for this. And then, of course, the Native Americans, as their custom at the time demanded, they needed to get back at this, uh, this unjust action. Because as it turned out, the pigs were slaughtered by other Europeans. The Raritans did not slaughter these pigs. And so the Native Americans needed to make things right by avenging what had happened. And so they raided Staten Island. They razed the buildings. They killed a bunch of people. Awful, awful encounter. And this is going to trigger a whole bunch of things even worse than this. So the man who led the raid into Raritan Village, he eventually commits suicide. Things are going to get so bad, people are literally going to start killing themselves. And so Cornelius Van Tynhoven, I believe is how you say his name, he was the leader of the raid. He offs himself at some point. And of the native attack on Staten Island, DeVries writes, Thus these savages resemble Italians, being very vengeful. So we don't have exactly the most tolerant people at the time. But DeVries does not blame the Native Americans for the destruction of his little settlement. He's quoted as saying, Thus I lost the beginning of my colony on Staten Island through the conflict of Commander Kieft, who wished to charge upon the savages what his own people had done. So he has an understanding of the Native Americans. There is a working relationship there. And even though he slaughtered, uh, they slaughtered and took out his settlement, he knew this was all Keith's fault. It was his incompetence and his lack of understanding of how things work in the colony. Now, the timeline is going to be fuzzy here because things are going to start to speed up and get chaotic really quick. 
Around the same time, there's a wheelwright named Klaus Schmitz, who's an older fella, not threatening to anybody. A young Native American man, he's an adult, comes to his house and says, I want to trade furs with you. I want, I want to make some trades. Klaus lets him into the house, and as he's kneeling down to open a chest of goods, the Native American cuts off his head. You can imagine the gruesome scene of somebody a couple days later walking into Klaus's house to see what's going on with him, just to find his decapitated body there on the floor, bled out. Kieft sends word to the sachem of the local tribe from which this guy probably came that he wants this guy delivered to New Amsterdam. He wants him delivered to the fort to, to undergo the justice system at the time for killing a Dutch settler. The sachem says that no such thing is going to happen because this murder was vengeance for when that guy's uncle, when he was a child, was killed by a Dutchman. You see, the Native Americans, they, they see everyone as teams. You're not individuals, necessarily. So you kill one of ours, I'll kill one of yours. So this young man who killed this old wheelwright is saying, my uncle was killed years before by a Dutchman, and this was my revenge. Now we're equal, a death for a death. The sachem, probably emboldened by the fact that all these tribes were outright refusing the corn tax, exposing the weakness of New Netherland, went so far as to say that he was sorry that 20 Christians had not been murdered. Around the same time, another Dutch man was looking to trade with a Native American, and they traded some baubles or something back and forth. Oh, I believe it was alcohol. I believe they were dealing in alcohol, and the Dutchman stole the Native American's fur coat. And of course, a couple days later, to avenge this theft, that Native American shot the Dutchman off his roof with an arrow in the back, killing him. Kieft again demanded justice based on the Dutch system of law that he was trying to uphold. Whereas in the native system of law and order, justice had already been wrought. It already happened. Everything has been resolved. At this point, Kieft is quoted as saying, we need to exterminate the Native Americans. We need to get rid of them totally. Essentially, he made a similar argument to Adolf Hitler with this idea of Liebenstrom, the idea of living space. The area that's now downstate New York was filling in with European immigration, and it was time for the Native Americans to go by any means necessary, and that includes extermination. Just to note again, this did not include the top of the colony, the area that's now the capital region of New York State, which was next to the Mohawk Indians and the Haudenosaunee. They had a great relationship, and every, every crazy thing that's about to happen, upstate New York was mostly spared from it because they had the protection of the Iroquois Five Nations people. So when I generalize and say Native Americans for the rest of the episode, just remember that the Five Nations were more were almost completely on the side of the Dutch. And while all this warfare is going on, they are raiding other Native American groups in what is now downstate New York, Pennsylvania, Long Island, all the way into Maryland and Delaware. So back to Keefe with his plan of just outright extermination. He wants to raise up a huge military force. He doesn't have the money to do that. And so he actually went into negotiations with various governments in New England to mortgage off large parts of New Netherland on behalf of the Dutch West India Company to raise up a mercenary force to defend the lower half of the colony. So again, he just keeps inviting the English in. He's allowing them to take bites 
out of the integrity of the new Netherland colony. It's not a good thing. Additionally, he increases the sale of firearms to the Mohawk and to the Mohegan because he knows they're enemies of these downstate tribes. He is truly looking to eliminate these tribes, to kill everybody. He wants to kill every one of his enemies. There is no surrender. He doesn't want capitulation. He wants utter desolation of anyone who doesn't like him in the Native American world. And in some cases, Keith gets precisely what he wanted. So in 1643, the Mohawk come down and they just decimate these downstate tribes, what would now be downstate New York just ruins them and it causes a mass migration out of the area to the interior of the continent or further down south closer to the southern english colonies that it would affect us to this day there are tribes that just simply disappeared during this year complete horror one group of 1000 native american refugees from these mohawk raids ended up in pavonia which was a settlement in new netherland it's now hudson county i believe new jersey and this group of refugees probably from several different villages, maybe different tribes, send messengers to Fort Amsterdam, to Kieft, asking for help, assistance. They are refugees. They're starving. They're hungry. They're cold. They're scared. The Mohawk are coming for them. Please, anything, help us. Kieft consults with some of the best people in the colony, people who've been there for a long time, people who know well better than him what to do. And he seemingly ignores everyone. Nobody wants something bad to come of this. And in fact, DeVries says something to the effect of, you're going to end up shedding Christian blood because of what you're thinking about doing. And what was he thinking about doing? Here's a quote from Keeft himself. We entreat that immediate hostile measures may be directed against the savages. They have not yet delivered up the assassins of Smits and Van Vorst, and thus these murders remain unavenged. The national character of the Dutch must suffer. God has now delivered our enemies into our hands. Let us attack them. The existing records of what happens next says that basically nobody supported this move except for the mercenaries and the hired hands that Kieft had. Whether that's true or not, we can't know. But what ended up happening is that Kieft sent troops to Pavonia in the middle of the night. These were refugees, men, women, children, babies, the elderly. And in the middle of the night, Keefe's men killed 80 of them in an absolute slaughter. There were nearby farmers who witnessed natives being cut to pieces, missing limbs, running into the wilderness, not even aware that they'd be dead in minutes because of blood loss, just adrenaline taking it over. Absolutely horrific scene that was completely unjustified as these were defenseless, not armed people sleeping at night. A 19th century historian described the scene as The noise of muskets mingled with the shrieks of the terrified Indians. Neither age nor sex were spared. Warrior and squaw, sachem and child, mother and baby were alike massacred. Daybreak scarcely ended the furious slaughter. Mangled victims seeking safety in the thickets were driven into the river. Parents rushed to save their children whom the soldiers had thrown into the stream, were driven back into the waters and drowned before the eyes of their unrelenting murderers. DeVries, who knew some of these people probably and advised against this massacre occurring, he writes, I sat up that night by the kitchen fire at the director's. About midnight, hearing loud shrieks, I ran up 
to the ramparts of the fort, looking towards Pavonia. I saw nothing but shooting and heard nothing but the shrieks of Indians murdered in their sleep. This source, I believe, came from a man named with the last name Vanderdonk, who we'll talk about quite a bit in the future. Some came to our people in the country with their hands, some with their legs cut off, and some holding their entrails in their arms. And others had such horrible cuts and gashes that worse than they were could never happen. And these poor simple creatures, as also many of our people, did not know any better than that they had been attacked by a party of other Indians, or Mohawk. After this exploit, the soldiers were rewarded for their services, and the director Keeft thanked them by taking them by the hand and congratulating them. Indeed, another source records that when the men did come back from this massacre, they came back with heads. Heads of dead men and women, children's heads, and Keeft was overjoyed and celebrated them as if they had just won this undefeatable battle against a, uh, a invincible foe. Abs absolutely disgusting. Keeft once again not understanding that revenge had to be enacted upon New Netherland to make up for the fact that these refugees from several different tribes uh, were murdered for no reason. And this sets off a powder keg and raids are all over the place. The natives rise up and form war bands. They start slaughtering farmers, taking the wives and the children as captives. Absolute destruction. The entire colony in its lower half starts to shrink back into Fort Amsterdam. People are running to the fort. They're leaving their farms. Everything's being burned down. People are being killed. They're being taken captive. This is the apocalypse for New Netherland. Various sources say that Kieft alone in his actions caused there to emerge Native American alliances that never existed before. And during this period, as many as 12 Algonquin tribes went to war with New Netherland. They rose up and they just started destroying everything. And they felt justified in their actions. In 1643, come time to plant crops, there's an uneasy truce. But when the crops are picked, the war starts again. And throughout 1643, 1644, 1645,、uh, people are even quoted as saying parties of Indians roved about day and night over Manhattan Island, killing the Dutch not a thousand paces from Fort Amsterdam. So, a year and a half into this, two years into it, slowly people are leaving their farms, everything is being destroyed, and basically the lower half of the colony is going to take shelter inside of Fort Amsterdam itself. It's going to get that bad. Now, to prove this point, the population of New Netherland from the time of about 1640 to the time that this guy, Keith, is going to get fired goes from about 3,000 people to 1,000 people. Two thirds of the population are gone, killed, captive of the Native Americans, or they go back to the Netherlands. The lower half of the colony being pushed into Fort Amsterdam, everything being abandoned. The Dutch would sometimes send out raiding parties to attack the Native Americans. Native Americans would send their raiding parties to attack the Dutch. Many times the Dutch raiding parties would be led by these English mercenaries who we talked about. Here's one account of a Dutch raid. On arriving there, the Indians were wide awake and on their guard, so that ours determined to charge and surround the houses, sword in hand. 
They demeaned themselves as soldiers and deployed in small bands, so that we got in short time one dead and twelve wounded. They were also hard-pressed that it was impossible for one to escape. In a brief space of time, there were counted 180 dead outside the houses. Presently, none burst forth, keeping within the houses, discharging arrows through the holes. The general perceived that nothing else was to be done and resolved that Sergeant Major Underhill to set the huts on fire, whereupon the Indians tried every means to escape, not succeeding, in which they returned back into the flames, preferring to perish by fire than die by our hands. What was most wonderful is that among the vast collection of men, women, and children, not one was heard to cry or scream. According to the report of the Indians themselves, the number then destroyed exceeded 500. Some say a full 700. Now, this is just one example. On the native side, not only did they destroy the Dutch settlements in what is now downstate New York, they also ravaged the English settlements that were part of New Netherland. They were sanctioned by Kieft and Hutchinson. If you know anything about New England history, you know who Anne Hutchinson is. She was murdered along with her family. Horrific. As everything came crashing down around Kieft, the Mohawk in upstate New York, they, they would chastise the Dutch in what is now the capital region at Fort Orange that you should go help your people. You should help the people at the, at the end of the Hudson River. You should go help those people. They're of your tribe. They're of your people. Why aren't you helping them? So even the Mohawk were like, everything's going crazy down there. You're part of that tribe. You should go down there and help them. Of course, the people, people up at Fort Orange didn't send much help. But it wouldn't matter if they tried. Because starting around this time, other tribes were now jumping on it, right? They, they saw the weakness in New Netherland. And anyone who could see any profit from it, they jumped into the conflict. The Wappinger Indians, who I've never mentioned before. They're living in the Mid-Hudson region. And now as ships are coming down from the northern part of New Netherland, from Fort Orange, they're stopping those ships from Rensselaerwick, the patroon ship. They're stopping those ships. They're taking people off those ships, taking the goods. They're killing the people on board, and they're taking people hostage too, or captive rather. Into 1644 and 45, things get even more desperate. The majority, I imagine, of the population left in the southern portion of the remaining existing colony are stuck in the fort. Things are getting claustrophobic. People are getting scared. There's no food supply. Crops aren't being allowed to be grown. They're, they're being raided and burned over year after year. Keith finally starts sending out diplomats instead of raiding parties to talk to the natives and say, let's come to some sort of resolution, a permanent fix here. And the natives respond by calling them corn thieves. So you're not Dutch anymore. You're not some, some foreigners with, with great things to give to us and things to teach us. You're not Christians as a former sachem called the people. You're just corn thieves. That's all you are. We distrust you. We're not going to negotiate with you. Kieft realizes the end is near. He's going to be recalled. The truth is going to come out. The letters that have been written for years now, nine years now, are finally making it to the Netherlands, and they're, they're being responded to, and it's over for him. He starts looking for scapegoats in the fort where everybody's huddled in. He starts blaming his underlings, saying, oh, yeah, that was your idea. Oh, you actually planned that, or you, you forced me to do that. I didn't actually want to do that, but you convinced me. One man he tries to scapegoat is a guy by the name of Marin Adriansen. I believe I said that right. Adriansen gets so mad at Keith for trying to put all the blame for all this 
misery on him. He tried to kill him. And he, and he was restrained and it didn't actually happen. But then even Marion's servant tried to kill him. He had two assassination attempts in the same day. Out of desperation, Keeft walks back his government changes. Instead of him having two votes and his assistant having one, and those three votes being the rule of the colony, he reassembles an assembly of men. He calls it the Council of Eight. And the first thing that Council of Eight does, they're scared, they're hungry, all of their investments have been destroyed, the natives not a thousand yards from the fort are ready to pick them off. The first thing the council does is say, you need to be recalled. Keeft has lost all support. He's been exposed for the incompetent failure that he is and the horrible person that he is. One thing we haven't talked about yet, well, we did a little bit, is that he's a coward among all these atrocities and raiding parties, cutting off of heads, all this stuff. He stays at the fort. Not once did he participate in these military endeavors, but he would pay the English to do it for him, to do his bidding. Now you might say, well, this is typical for the time, this kind of violence, this, this, imp this prejudice. But in all of the surviving documentation, it's very clear that the Dutch themselves did not approve of these actions. Overall, they found these things disgusting, what was going on, what Keith was doing. So even by the standards of his own time, in his own culture, he was a horrible human being. Peace or some semblance of it, was eventually achieved in the southern part of the colony through the efforts of not Kieft, but men like de Vries and Adrian van der Donk, who I mentioned earlier. And for his efforts, he was awarded the title of Jonkheer, which means young lord in Dutch, and awarded a big stretch of land north of New Amsterdam, and that became Yonkers, New York. That's where we get that word from. But the problems caused by Kieft's war, as it will be known, the depopulation of both the European and native populations, the tattered relations with natives, which in some cases will never recover for the history of New Netherland, inviting in the English, allowing the Swedes to settle on the Delaware. The list goes on. Some of the things that Keefe did will never be fixed. Some of these problems will persist to the end of New Netherland and will be unrepairable. He is the absolute worst director that New Netherland ever had. And Kieft is successfully recalled back to the Netherlands. His replacement would show up in 1647 to relieve him of his duty. And that'd be a man by the name of Peter Stuyvesant, who I know you've heard of before. When Stuyvesant shows up, there are two men in particular who have charges against Kieft that they want to relay through Stuyvesant back to the Dutch West India Company. They want to see Kieft in prison. They want to see an actual punishment of some sort to all of his actions, not just losing his job. But Stuyvesant, as we're going to learn, he didn't like the fact that these guys were uppity against a director. And so what he ends up doing is sentencing those two to go back to the Netherlands on the same ship as Kieft. The three of them are put on a boat. And when that boat is sailing east, heading towards the Netherlands... It is shipwrecked off the coast of Wales. The two men who accuse Kieft, they actually survive. But Kieft drowns, dead, gone. And many people at the time said it was justified. He deserved to die. 